0: Well, Hard Words played a significant role in the life of Charles Spurgeon, who was a brilliant and prolific preacher in London in the 19th century. He came to faith in Christ at the age of 15. He was on his way to church when a blizzard forced him to stop and go to a primitive Methodist chapel instead of the church he planned to attend. Describing his conversion, uh, his conversion Spurgeon wrote, I sometimes think. I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, which says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look, you may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. I said he, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved." Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. It was a hard word that got his attention, that compelled him, to look to Christ. I'm tempted to adopt that strategy. So-and-so, you look miserable today. Let me tell you about Jesus. (laughs) But that wasn't the only time when a hard word got his attention. Spurgeon was raised by Christian parents who taught him the word and prepared his heart to receive the gospel. Regarding his mother, Spurgeon wrote, "'I cannot tell you how much I owe "'to the solemn words of my good mother.'" It was the custom on Sunday evenings while we were yet little children for her to stay at home with us. And then we sat around the table and read verse by verse and she explained the scripture to us. Then came a mother's prayer and some of the words of that prayer we shall never forget even when our hair is gray. I remember on one occasion her praying thus, Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins... It will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. That thought of a mother's bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart. When I was a child, if I had done anything wrong, I did not need anybody to tell me of it. I told myself of it, and I have cried myself to sleep many a time with the consciousness that I had done wrong. And when I came to know the Lord, I felt very grateful to Him because He had given me a tender conscience. Hard words played an important role in the life of Charles Spurgeon to help produce in him a a tender conscience and to awaken him, to get his attention, to, to bring him to faith in Christ, that he might repent of his sins and look to Christ and be saved. We are continuing our sermon series going through The book of Hebrews, and our sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12. When you read the book of Hebrews, it becomes obvious that God graciously gave the author of Hebrews a deep and profound knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. It also becomes obvious that God graciously gave him a deep and profound insight into the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was a brilliant theologian and a brilliant writer. But we also see that God gave him the heart of a pastor. And because he had the heart of a pastor, he was willing to say hard things. In our passage today, we see a rebuke, a word of warning, and a word of encouragement. I'm going to read chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12, and I encourage you to follow along. to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of, and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit Who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The first thing we see is a word of rebuke whereby the author of Hebrews confronted the Christians to whom he was writing. Last week I explained that chapter 4, verse 14, was the beginning of an argument that goes all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. And the argument. That the author makes in these six or so chapters is that Jesus is a superior priest to all the priests under the old covenant. The priesthood of Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is a greater high priest than any of the high priests who have come before him. And the argument provides us wonderful insight into the person, into the work of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of this teaching is to grow our faith, to stir up our affections, to compel us to persevere in the faith and to fuel our worship. It is wonderful, rich, edifying teaching about Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. But in our passage today which is in the middle or towards the beginning of this argument, we see a departure from the description and explanation of Jesus as our great high priest. The author paused his argument in order to speak directly to the readers of the letter, in order to speak directly to their situation and their spiritual condition. It's as if he's saying, hold on a minute, before I go further, I just need to say something to you because what I'm saying is very important. What I'm saying has weighty implications, but I'm concerned that you're not gonna hear it. I'm concerned that you don't understand the significance. I'm concerned that you're not paying close enough to attention to what I'm saying. So he pauses the argument to confront them, to address their situation, their spiritual condition, to try to grab them by the shoulders and say, you have to listen. You have to pay attention to this. And through this, we are reminded that the author was not only a brilliant theologian, but a pastor who cared deeply about the spiritual well-being of the church. Because he loved his brothers and sisters in Christ and cared deeply about their faith and the health of the church, he was willing to confront them when it was necessary. In verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 3 he confronted them with a rebuke. And a rebuke is when you call someone out, is when you say, listen, what you're doing is wrong. Your attitude, your your words, your, your actions, whatever it may be, what you're doing is wrong and you need to change course. And as followers of Christ, the basis for any rebuke that we might give is the word of God. If we see a brother or sister in Christ living in a way that is inconsistent with the truth of the gospel revealed in God's word, a rebuke may be necessary to help bring that Christian back into conformity with God's Word. And what we see in God's Word is that there are times when a rebuke is necessary and helpful. I think most of us can attest to this. Most of us can probably think of a time when someone said something to us that was a hard word, but was a hard word that we needed to hear and helped us change in a way that we needed to change. During his ministry on earth, Jesus invested heavily in his disciples, whom he loved dearly. And we see there were times when he needed to rebuke them. At one point he said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. That is a weighty rebuke. Telling Peter, his disciple, his friend, Get thee behind me, Satan. I can imagine Peter's response like, Who, me? That's a hard word to be referred to as doing the work of Satan. And there was other times when he rebuked the disciples as a whole for their lack of understanding, for failing to comprehend Jesus' teaching and understand what it meant to follow him. And he even taught them at times that they needed to rebuke others. In Luke chapter 7, verse 13, he said, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. In 1 Timothy 5.20, the apostle Paul wrote, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And in 2 Timothy 4.2, he instructed Timothy and said, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What we see is that rebuking and correcting ought to be a normal part of our lives as followers of Christ. It should be a normal part of our lives together as the church family. We are all sinners. We all continue to wrestle and struggle with sin. We are all in need of being corrected, of being rebuked at times so that we might repent and follow Christ. Being rebuked by a brother or sister in Christ who loves us is a good thing that we ought to embrace. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of resistance to this now for several reasons. One reason is that we've seen many bad examples of how this has been done. Sadly, there have been many bad examples of people rebuking or correcting in a way that is harsh, domineering, or condescending. But we also need to be aware that we can err in responding to the bad examples by refraining from rebuking in a Christ-honoring way when it is good, right, and necessary. We don't want to respond to bad examples by failing to do what God commands us to do in his word. There are times when the honoring thing to do is to correct or to rebuke, to do so with a loving heart, not in a way that's harsh, not in a way that's condescending, but in a way that seeks the good of the person who needs correction. If we're honest, another reason there is resistance to this is that there are times when we don't like being told we're wrong. We don't want to be held accountable, and we don't want to change. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful not to set up walls or keep people at arm's length to avoid accountability, correction, or even rebuke when we need it. Resistance to accountability hinders your growth in Christ. We don't want to be those who resist accountability, who resist being corrected, who ensure that no one can get close enough to call us out when we need to be called out. I was having a conversation with Corey Christensen this week, and he reminded me of Proverbs chapter 27, verses five and six, which say, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A friend is one who is willing to wound you in love by telling you hard things that you may need to hear. The author of Hebrews loved his brothers and sisters in Christ to whom he was writing and was willing to say hard things, but they were wounds of a friend. So what was the nature of his rebuke? He said, I have much to explain to you, but it is hard because you have become dull of hearing. I want to teach you these wonderful, glorious truths about Christ, but I'm concerned that as I'm teaching, it's not going to sink in, that you're not going to grasp it that it's not gonna change you, that you're not gonna rightly apply it to your own heart and life, I'm concerned that you're not really listening, you're not comprehending, you're not applying the word that is being taught to you. He was not accusing them of being unintelligent or unable to learn, nor was he suggesting that his teaching was so complex that it can only be understood by the spiritual elite. No, he rebuked them for their lack of willingness to learn and grow in the faith. The problem was not a matter of intelligence, but a matter of diligence. Growing requires diligence. Growing requires attentiveness. Growing requires intentionally seeking to learn, understand, and apply the truth of God's word to your heart and life. If you are not intentional, if you are not actively seeking to grow, you will become dull of hearing. If you read God's word and quickly forget what you've read, if you hear a sermon preached and quickly forget what you heard preached, you will become dull of hearing. You will be prevented from growing and maturing In the faith. Rather than demonstrating their spiritual maturity like adults who eat solid food, they were spiritually immature, like infants who only drink milk. They were failing to progress and mature in the faith. One of the things he said to them was, By now, you ought to be teachers. But it's like you're still first grade students learning the basics. In this rebuke, we see one of the goals of maturing in in the faith. One of the goals of maturing in the faith is so that we can, in turn, teach others, help others grow and mature in the faith. You see, this is what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus is to learn for your own sake, but also for the sake of others. So that you can encourage others, whether it's in a personal conversation, or showing up to a small group, or a Bible study, It's having something to offer, something to teach, a word of encouragement based on God's word. We see this in the Great Commission. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus gave his disciples the Great Commission. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus invested in his disciples. He taught them so that they, in turn, could go and teach others. And this is the pattern for the church, for all who are Christians, for every disciple of Christ. We are to learn and grow and then look for opportunities to help others learn and grow. We want to all be involved actively in the discipling process, both learning and learning and teaching. David Platt, a pastor in Washington, D.C., tells the story of having an opportunity to go and teach the Bible to Christians in the underground church in a country where Christians are persecuted. And he recalls how he would teach the Bible to these believers, and they would listen attentively, diligently, taking notes urgently, because they knew that they were learning this not only for their own sake, but so that they could go and take this teaching and teach others. They listened. They learned with a sense of urgency. Brothers and sisters, do you have that urgency when you are listening, when you are studying, when you are growing in the Word? Do you have that urgency that I not only need to learn this for the sake of my own soul, but I need to learn this so that the Lord can use me to teach others? so that I can help others grow in their faith. When the author of Hebrews wrote this letter, he was saying, by now, you all ought to be teachers. You ought to be teaching others, but you still need to learn the basics. He's saying that is a problem. How about you? How would you characterize your growth in Christ or lack thereof? How well do you listen and learn the word of God? Are you listening and learning with the hope and desire that the Lord will use you to teach others? If you are a new Christian, I hope that you will listen and grow, looking ahead to the time when the Lord will use you to help others grow. If you've been a Christian for a while, you should be actively looking for these opportunities to teach others. You should be studying God's word, hoping and praying that the Lord will use you to help others grow in their faith. When the author rebuked the Christians, he also included an exhortation. He didn't just say, here's what you're doing wrong. He said, here's the path forward. The problem is, you're not maturing in your faith. You're not growing. You've become dull of hearing. But the path forward is to learn, is to grow, is to progress he exhorted them to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and to go on to maturity. The maturity he called them to was a growth in the knowledge and understanding of God's word and growth in godliness. It's not that we never remember and remind ourselves of the basic truths of the gospel. We see examples in scripture of Christians and their need to be reminded of the basic truths in the gospel, but we don't stay there. We also progress in our knowledge and our understanding of God's word, the Old Testament, the New Testament. We grow in our understanding of God's plans, his design, his purposes, his will, what it looks like to follow him in this life, here and now. We need to be growing in our knowledge and understanding of God's word, and as we're growing in our knowledge and understanding, we need to be applying it to our hearts and lives so that we are becoming increasing in godliness. Are you increasing in godliness? Are you becoming increasingly more like Christ? Is the fruit of the Spirit becoming increasingly evident in your life? I want to encourage you to make the most of the opportunities you have to learn, to grow in your knowledge and understanding of God's Word. We have an abundance of resources, an abundance of opportunities. We have no excuses. We have no excuses to not be growing and maturing and progressing in the faith. The question is are you practicing diligence? Our passage begins with a rebuke that includes an exhortation. And next we see a weighty warning. We see this in verses four through eight of chapter six. The warning concerns those who have been enlightened but fall away. What happens to such a person? We are warned that it is impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the word of God, and then fallen away to restore them to repentance. The question arises, what does this mean? Who are these people to whom he is referring in verses 4 through 6? Well, there is a lot of debate about the meaning and right interpretation of these verses, this passage has been dissected in countless ways and numerous explanations have been offered. I will briefly cover three general ways this passage has been interpreted and understood. First, some people have understood verses 4 and 6 to refer to true Christians, and the warning about falling away, therefore, implies that a true Christian can lose his or her salvation. Secondly, some view the description in verses four through six as describing true Christians, but hold the view that true Christians cannot lose their salvation. Therefore, the warning is understood as an effective means by which God preserves true Christians from committing apostasy, meaning from rejecting Christ. So in other words, those who hold this view view that this is describing Christians... But God uses this warning as one of the ways to preserve true Christians and to keep them from actually rejecting Christ. Finally, many believe these verses describe people who have had all the benefits of hearing the gospel preached, observed the work of the Spirit within the covenant community, witnessed the power of God at work, and perhaps... Given, have even given a profession of faith and were baptized, but prove they are not genuine believers by falling away and rejecting Christ. Of those three options, I think we need to reject the first one, but consider the other two. First, I think we need to reject any notion that a Christian can lose his or her salvation, because that is not what this passage is teaching, and the idea that a Christian can lose their salvation contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. There are many passages we could go to to see this, but I think we should go first to the words of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the certainty in the words of Jesus? Not possibilities, but certainties he says all that the father gives me will come to me not all that the father gives to me might come to me all that the father gives to me will come to me Amen. and he says whoever comes to me i will never cast out he says all that uh, who are sent to me i will lose none of them but i will raise them up on the last day jesus speaks about those who are saved in certain terms. All who the Father has given to me will come to me. I will not lose a single one, and I will raise them up at the last day. Verses like these, along with many others, ought to help us see that someone who is truly saved cannot lose their salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Someone who is born again cannot become unborn born again. Now, we might say, okay, I can see in Scripture how it teaches that a Christian cannot lose their salvation. But what about the reality of those whom we see who profess faith in Christ, who are involved in the church, but then fall away? Many of us can think of specific examples of this. Many of us can think of people whom we know who have professed faith in Christ, who have been involved and engaged in the life of the church, but are now not walking with the Lord and perhaps are even denying the truth of the gospel. Well, based on what we read in Scripture, that shouldn't surprise us. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus said, "'Not everyone who says to me, "'Lord, Lord,' will enter the kingdom of heaven.'" but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What this passage teaches us is that there are some who will call in the name of the Lord, who will even claim to have done mighty works in the name of the Lord, but will have not truly known and believed in Christ. There may be Evidence. There may be things, signs to point to their salvation, but Christ is saying there are some who will be self-deceived into thinking that they have believed, but they have not. In First John chapter two, verse nineteen, we read, "They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out." that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Again, we see that there may be some who appear to be among the believing community, but those who depart from the believing community prove through their departure that they were never truly part of the believing community. They were never truly saved. The departure of those who fall away reveals what they truly are as those who were never truly saved in the first place. So scripture teaches that we cannot lose our salvation, but there will be some who are a part of the church and call Jesus Lord, but are not truly saved. Regarding Hebrews 6, that leaves us with the other two possibilities. Option two was that these verses in 4 through 6 describe Christians But the warning given is one of the ways that God preserves true Christians. So God gives warnings and his warnings are effective. Meaning God warns Christians not to commit the sin of apostasy. And that is one of the ways that God prevents true Christians from committing apostasy. That is certainly a possibility and there's reasons why that interpretation is appealing. And there's option three. Option three is that these verses in four through six do not describe true Christians, but those who may give the appearance of being true Christians and those who have had every opportunity and every benefit imaginable to come to faith in Christ, but in turn, walk away. The reason I think the author might not be referring to Christians in verses four through six is because of what we read in verse nine. In verse nine, he contrasted what he described in verses four through eight with the experience of the Christians to whom he was writing. Listen again to verse nine. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So in other words, he may have been saying, listen, all these people had the benefits of coming to faith in Christ. They were able to taste and see firsthand the the goodness of God, the power of the gospel, the sweetness of God's spirit and presence among his people. Yet they fall away. But in your case, I am certain of better things, things that belong to salvation. So what he described, therefore, earlier did not necessarily belong to salvation. It may have given the appearance that they were saved, But didn't necessarily describe those who were saved. And so his confidence for the Christians to whom he was writing was that their situation was different. He was confident of better things, things that do belong to salvation. And this makes sense with the analogy he used. He spoke of land that has drunk the rain. Think of land. That is meant to cultivate crops, receiving the rain from above. And the land that produces a good crop receives blessing. But the land that receives all the benefits of the rain and ought to produce good crops doesn't, is cursed. And this may re- refer to those who receive all the benefits of coming to, to faith in Christ, but ultimately they don't. And those will be cursed. So while he wasn't trying to scare Christians into thinking they could lose their salvation, he warned them of the danger of rejecting Christ when you have received all the benefits and evidence needed to believe. He was saying, you who have heard the word preached and participated in the life of the church and seen the evidence of God's goodness and power in the lives of believers, don't fall away and reject Christ's. But why is it impossible for such a person to be restored again to repentance? They cannot be restored to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Philip Hughes writes, verses four through six describe the irremediable state of those who having publicly confessed allegiance to Christ in baptism, subsequently turn their backs on the gospel and thereby renounce their baptism and all that it is implied by it. Repudiating their profession that Christ was crucified for them and they with him, they show that their true place is with those rejectors who display their hatred by crucifying him. Such apostates are not genuine branches of him who is the true vine. They do not abide in him, and so they are cut off and cast away. Michael Kruger explains Our author goes on to say that apostates, those who persist in rejecting God, in all the blessings he has given them, are basically crucifying Christ again. Of course, they are not literally crucifying Christ again. Christ only died once. But they are doing the same thing to Jesus as the people who crucified him. They are mocking him, rejecting him, and trying to humiliate him. Apostates do this with the full knowledge of who Christ is. That is why they are subject to more severe judgment. It is not that if you've never heard the gospel, you're off the hook. No, all unbelievers will be accountable for their sin. But it is different to have received the gospel, heard good preaching, seen the spirit work, and then said no. The purpose of this warning was to get the attention of these Christians so they would wake up from their dullness and sluggishness. It was to warn them with the purpose of the warning to help preserve them. They were to be warned so that they would not persist in being sluggish, so they would not persist in being dull of hearing, so they would not persist in spiritual immaturity. It was meant to shake them, to to grab their attention, to say, wake up, recognize the dangers of those who have all these benefits, and then reject Christ. See the danger of that. Have nothing to do with that. Instead, grow, mature, listen, hear, understand, apply, Don't be like those for whom judgment will be severe. I hope this warning serves us this morning. I hope this warning serves us by getting our attention to impress upon us the importance of growing, progressing, maturing in the faith. I hope it will spur us on to diligence. I hope we will be those who are diligent to grow, to mature, to progress in the faith. So he rebuked them and warned them. Finally, we see a word of encouragement. While the author of Hebrews warned about the grave danger of falling away, he was confident that the Christians to whom he was writing would not be among those who fall away. Again, he said, in your case, I am sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I am hopeful, I am confident for better things for you. We might ask, why was the author of Hebrews convinced of better things for these Christians, even though they were dull of hearing and were not maturing in the faith at the rate they should? The evidence of their salvation that he found compelling was their work in love for the name of Jesus in serving other Christians. One of the greatest pieces of evidence that Jesus Christ has saved you is your desire to love and serve other believers. Jesus said as much. In John 13, 34, and 35, he told his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The distinguishing mark or characteristic of a Christian in the world is our love for one another. Our love for one another is to be such that it sets us apart as followers of Christ. The author said, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He urged them to continue following Jesus with all earnestness and to continue to show love to all the saints, as this provides us with full assurance of the hope we have. He said, don't be sluggish. He called them out for being dull of hearing, for being sluggish. He impresses this on them again, saying, don't be sluggish, but imitate those who have walked by faith and patiently endured trials. One of the spiritual strengths of this congregation is that we have Christians in all age groups. I love that about this church family. I love the fact that we have Christians who have been following Christ for decades. Those among us who have been following Christ for decades, who have persevered in the faith, who have held fast To Christ, in spite of all the ups and downs, in spite of all the trials and suffering, provide for us a wonderful example to imitate. We want to imitate those who have persevered in the faith. We want to imitate those who have already passed on, who followed Christ until their dying day. We want to be imitators of those who have held fast to Jesus, who diligently pursued Him all the days of their lives. I'm particularly grateful for the older saints among us. I'm particularly grateful for the example that you set for us. Well, the point of our passage this morning is to compel us to be diligent, to grow and mature in the faith so that we will persevere and not fall away. If you're not a Christian, then we want you to know that salvation is found in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ. Our hope, our desire, our prayer for you is that you will recognize that, like the rest of us here, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and God in his kindness has provided a Savior, Jesus, the Son of God and the Savior of the world, who came into the world, born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, which we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate his birth because it reminds us that God sent a savior into the world to rescue us, to save us. And Jesus lived the life uh, without sin that we have all failed to live. And he went to the cross to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin in our place. He was crucified, he was buried, he died. But then on the third day, he rose again. Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death, and he appeared to many people after his resurrection, proving that he is alive, And after 40 days, he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And friends, Jesus Christ will come again. He came into the world a little over 2,000 years ago, but he will come back. And that will be the time of the final judgment. And those who will be saved, the final judgment, are those who trust in Christ. Repent of your sin, believe in Christ, and be saved. If you are a Christian, the question for us is, how do we grow and mature? We don't want to be those who are dull. We don't want to be those who are sluggish. We don't want to be those who are perpetually immature. So how do we grow and mature? Well, it begins with listening to the Word. It begins by paying careful attention to God's Word when we are reading, when we are studying with others, when we are sitting, listening to the Word preached, We need to be those who pay careful attention. We need to be those who listen diligently and urgently for the sake of our own souls and for the sake of being able to teach others. Growing and maturing means recognizing that we need correction, opening yourself up to that kind of accountability, not putting up walls, not keeping people at arm's length, but welcoming people in, inviting people in Giving them the opportunity to speak the truth, even if it's hard. God uses that. God uses hard truth to produce change in our lives that we desperately need. How are you progressing in your growth in Christ? Do you feel stagnant in your faith? Are you open to correction? Do you desire accountability? Are you willing to receive hard words? Are you willing to say hard words? I hope our text will be a means by which the Lord gets our attention. I hope these words that we have read today will serve to get our attention, just as the author of Hebrews was trying to get the attention of his original hearers. I hope and pray that it will get our attention, that it will compel us to pursue spiritual maturity, that we will be those who are diligent and not sluggish, to grow in our faith. Again, this word of rebuke, this word of warning, this word of encouragement comes within, in the, in the middle of this wonderful and glorious teaching on Christ. What we are studying in the book of Hebrews is wonderful, it is glorious, it is edifying, it is good for us. And therefore, we need to be those who pay careful attention. May the Lord use this sermon, may he use our whole study on Hebrews to grow and mature us in the faith, to deepen our understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we might be encouraged and built up, that we might be equipped to also teach others. May this be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we will be those who pay careful attention. We pray that we will not be dull of hearing, but we pray that we will listen carefully understanding and applying your word to our own hearts and lives, being willing to receive rebuke and correction when necessary. We pray that we will also learn with the intent to teach others in whatever opportunities you provide for us. Help us to grow and mature in the faith. Help us to be diligent, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.